0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
1: This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
2: Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week, of course. Coming to you via Zoom. Have been coming to you via Zoom for the last year plus. Got the whole crew here. One of the benefits of Zoom is that we get people from no matter where they travel, we usually can grab our colleagues and co-hosts. we got Eric Bradlow here, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner. This is Cade Massey. Delighted to be with you for another week. And as usual, we're going to open up with a discussion of what's going on in the world of COVID. Every now and then we bring in an expert, and I mean a real expert, to join the conversation. And we've done so today. Delighted to welcome into the conversation Dr. Tom Frieden. Tom served as director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, often called CDC, from 2009 to 2017. Before that, he was commissioner of the New York City Health Department, presently serving as president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives, which we'll need to hear more about. Tom, delighted to have you. Thanks for coming on the show with us.
3: Great to be discussing this
2: with you. Tom, there's so much to dig into here. And um, let me just jump to the first question that seems obvious to me, and that is... are you glad to be on the sidelines over the last year and a half, or would you rather have been right there in the front lines as things just got so crazy?
3: Well, it was very frustrating in 2020 to see uh, mistake after mistake made uh, and mistakes that really cost literally hundreds of thousands of lives. Mm-hmm. So um, that's something that, uh, you know, you can't change the past. Uh, we did the best we could from the outside. But ultimately, public health is about the public, sector. And to get public health right, you need a strong public sector. Now, you also need good civil society involvement, you need good data, you need transparency, you need a media, you need scientific and healthcare systems. But ultimately, when it comes to getting it right, in terms of anything from uh, birth defects that are preventable, to motor vehicle crashes, to stopping smoking, to reducing violence, there are true ways that are evidence-based that public health can make a difference and seeing them get ignored, sidelined and undermined for most or all of 2020 was certainly one of the most horrific experiences of my life.
2: Can you give us a concrete example of that happening? Just, just one example to make plain the specific um, issue that you're taking up here. Well, there are a lot to choose from, but I'll give you the one that to me was
3: just inexcusable. And it was when the White House insisted that CDC remove from its guidance the statement that singing in choirs indoors was a big risk for spreading COVID. And this is after there had already been a big outbreak in a choir. Now, Mm -hmm. this goes back a bit because when I was actually before I was health commissioner in New York City, I ran tuberculosis control in New York City. Mm -hmm. And we had an outbreak of tuberculosis in a high school choir that I Mm -hmm. investigated. And so this knowledge that choirs are just a very effective way of spreading massive amounts of infectious material. We know this. We know this for decades. So -hmm. to have someone say, no, you can't tell people not to do that because that would be a violation of religious freedom. There are ways to, to adapt to that. Uh, they could have said, "All right, we'll take it out of our church guidance, but we'll have a separate choir guidance." Whether it's uh, my ninety-one-year-old my mother, I told her, "You got to stop going to choir." I told her that last March. Um, but that basic um, overruling of basic science—it uh, doesn't just undermine the people who might have been infected and killed in choirs. It undermines confidence in our institutions. And that undermines our ability to get people to, to take a vaccine or to mm-hmm. follow other advice that may save their life and other people's lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Adi, you've got
2: a question here for you.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, as I'm a former or maybe potentially current singer, so I, yeah. I kind of agree with some of those advice. Um, but there's another side of it, which was there was another side which was banning, for example, at Berkeley, where I was a graduate student, you couldn't go outside and exercise. Um, And there was such a jumble of advice, so so good advice like not to join a choir without masks um, was a terrible idea, but that was all got mixed in with things for which there really wasn't any scientific basis, and that led to massive confusion at all level, how how do you kind of address that, looking back.
3: Well, I have to say I was asked this question uh, on May sixth in Congress and I said very clearly outdoors is vastly lower risk than indoors. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think. Um, There were uh, uh, governments that didn't do a good job in enforcing outdoor mask mandates. It's not so simple, though. First off, our our knowledge has been evolving. So if you take the issue of masks, early on, neither I nor most other people thought masks were going to be important. If you go back to January, February into March, wasn't at all clear. Starting mid-March, April of 2020, it became really clear that masks were very important. So, yeah, we changed our recommendation. I think it's attributed to Keynes, who once said, You know, when the facts change, I change my opinion. What do you do, sir? (laughs)
4: So, So, Tom, let me ask you a related question. One of the things that, since we're a statistics show, that we talk about all the time is reflecting uncertainty. And people, a lot of people, when maybe they have this misconception, like you're just describing, that when people talk about the CDC, Everything that's said has probability one, like, you know, that, well, there's, if we say it, it must be certain. How do you reflect uncertainty and also in a way that allows you to not look, I'll call it uh, in quotes, wrong when you have to update?
3: Well, I think there are key principles of how to communicate in a health emergency. Be first, be right, be credible, be empathetic, give people practical, proven things to do to protect themselves and their family. Tell people what we know, when we know it, how we know it. Tell people we don't know and what we're doing to try to find it out. And if you're upfront about that, I think uh, you do much better. And and during my time at CDC, there were times when people in Washington were really angry at me because I said things that were just they were the truth, but they were uh, inconvenient truths, if you were. For example, during H1N1, I was asked, uh, are we going to have enough vaccine on time? I said, no. We will not have enough vaccine on time. We'll have too little vaccine. The disease will peak. Then vaccine will come and we won't be able to use what we have. I mean, I guess I wasn't supposed to say something like that to Congress, but that was the truth. So I said
1: it. You, um, you I guess you, t- you mentioned credit bill, both being kind of early on things and credibility is obviously desiderata. But, like, as far as kind of, I think, you know, I think the public also somewhat responds to consistency or at least inconsistency in messaging. And that's kind of what something that kind of undermines, and fairly or not, uh, your credibility. So, like, the mask thing, for example, the messaging on that was pretty inconsistent in the early phase of COVID. And I think that's probably what kind of doomed it to be sort of or, or, or put it into the political issue, made it a political issue kind of for the entirety of this experience. So, I guess... How do you as a, you know, how do you as a CDC director, as a scientist kind of balance that kind of being kind of, you know, being able to kind of provide as advice as quickly as possible, but being consistent with that advice, as you sort of said, as science, you know, changes and, and, and you have to change your opinions.
3: Uh, I think the consistency is that we base our decisions on data um, to the best of our ability, that we um, use data that's openly available, publicly derived and we give people the basis of what we're doing. When it comes to masks, yes, you have uh, inconsistency because we learned that they're important, so we recommended them more. But you also have really the the pinnacle of the, uh, 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 or one of the pinnacles of the Trump administration's undermining of science. When CDC finally gets approval to say, yes, we recommend masks, at the very same press conference, President Trump says, I'm not going to wear a mask. Now, that really made it very, very difficult for any agency to get it right. And somehow masks became enormously political. This, to me, is a little puzzling because, yeah, it it could be uncomfortable to wear a mask. But the main freedom that a mask inhibits is the freedom of the virus that causes COVID to spread and kill other people.
2: So. Tom, one of the things I'm hearing you talk about is the political challenge that lay on top of all the other challenges with this pandemic, and it seemed to be uh, it caused some real complications at a number of key points. but this thing was going to be really tricky anyway right this was this was um, complicated in a number of other ways so I'd love to hear a little bit more about two pieces um, one is the the modeling piece of it, so that's that's kind of where we get excited because we're geeky like that, but the other is the the behavioral piece so this is somewhere between the model and the politics you've got to give advice based not just on pure science but your prediction of how people are going to act and you want to kind of engineer their behavior and it feels like the cdc took a couple of missteps on that as well and but that's really hard i mean one of the things we've learned i think from this pandemic is that the behavioral components in these models need a lot of attention and they're just not going to act the way we necessarily expect them to so how did you think about that when you were running the CDC or, or, and how did you think about it as you watched others make their decisions on how do we get the given, given facts as best as we understand them, how do we engineer people and what's the, what's the trade-off between being transparent and um, paternalistic?
3: Well, you, you raise a lot of important points about politics, modeling, behavioral science, and, and a lot of what public health does is try to change behavior, but I really think of that as a failure of public health, because if we got public health right, we wouldn't have to change behavior. So, for example, we don't tell everyone to boil their water because we have clean water in the U.S. We don't tell people to put fluoride drops in the water because we fluoridate our water and our toothpaste. That's a reflection that we haven't structured society so that the default value is the healthy value. And that's what we need to try to do to make it so that if you go with the flow, you're going to be healthy, non-addicted, healthy weight. And that means, yes, that means restructuring some of the ways we uh, organize our society. In fact, one definition of public health is the organized activities of society to protect and promote health. Mm -hmm. And in a way, when you're having to convince people of something, uh, you failed. I take an example of a colleague of mine. He's uh, 90 or just about, and he lives in the United Kingdom. And come mid-December, he gets a call from his nurse saying, would you like a COVID vaccine? He says, yes, I would very much like a COVID vaccine. And she says, well, you have an appointment next Thursday at 5.55, come in, and 15 minutes later, you'll be able to leave. And that's exactly what he did. So that's a system that doesn't need to spend a massive amount of effort convincing people
2: to get vaccinated because they have a primary healthcare system that works. Tom, this is a f- fascinating uh, position, and I'm hugely sympathetic to it. It's like, look, there's only so much we can do about biases and trouble with decision making. Let's structure things optimally. This is a, a bit of a digression from the pandemic, but like, where where do you think the greatest opportunity is right now in U.S. public health for some improvement structurally? If you could just wave your hands and have some structural improvement for U.S. public health, along the lines we've just been talking, what would that be?
3: Well, I'm going to divide that into two questions. One is the structure of our public health system. And the second is the structure that promotes health. So Mm -hmm. the first, a little bit wonky policy issue, we need to fix the way we fund CDC so that it doesn't have boom and bust cycles. And we need to fix the integration of a federal state, city, and local health departments so they're aligned because they're currently not aligned at all. In terms of promoting health in the U.S., we think of things that can be done in the community broadly and things that can be done in healthcare. In the community broadly, tobacco remains the leading preventable cause of death in this country. We don't think about it necessarily because, quite frankly, um, the elites don't smoke anymore, but still 15%, 40 million Americans smoke and uh, a third of our, or a half of them are gonna be killed by it. And many more will have emphysema and terrible other problems from it, cancers and other things. We could end the tobacco epidemic by denicotinizing tobacco. And uh, in concert with that, letting nicotine be used in less harmful forms. The second thing we could do that could make a huge difference um, on a community basis is reduce sodium intake. Sodium is a killer. Uh, We consume two, three, four times as much as we need. And because of that, we have high blood pressure, dementia, strokes, heart attacks, kidney failure. Um, And it's very hard to change that as an individual. But if our food gradually and steadily changed, that would make a huge difference. The Mm -hmm. third area that I would mention is pollution with PM 2.5, a lot of heart attacks and strokes. I'll just say one last thing, our healthcare system for $4 trillion a year, doesn't get the most important thing right, even half the time. And that's control of blood pressure. We need to focus like a laser on getting people's pressure control because that'll prevent heart attacks, strokes, kidney failure, dementia, and many other problems.
2: What's the biggest, what's the biggest cause of trouble with blood pressure, high blood pressure? High salt. High salt. salt. So Sodium thing. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay.
4: Yeah, so Tom, I to ask you, we talked about this a lot on Wharton Moneyball about when we were talking about the vaccine once it came out um what what maybe it's not a single answer to this but what's the objective function we're math guys you know you have an input you have an output what's the objective function that the CDC is trying to maximize here you could argue we're trying to minimize the number of deaths that's one thing you could say we're trying to minimize the number of people that get covid is there like a single objective function or is it like a multi-prong objective function or is it simply the goal during a pandemic is save as many lives as you can, as quickly as you can, and as many as you can?
3: Well, it's phased. So when vaccine was very limited, the CDC, and this is in the prior administration, give credit where it's due, did a really important thing with uh, uh, vaccination of nursing home residents. Nursing home residents accounted for something like 40 percent of all deaths and by having a focused effort, those first vaccines going to nursing homes, they saved tens of thousands of lives. So that's what was done when vaccine was very limited. Now we have unlimited vaccine. Basically, the more the merrier, the more people get vaccinated, the safer we'll all be. Uh, you can argue it in two different ways. You can say, hey, vaccinate people over 50 or 60 because they're going to die from it. Or you can say, hey, vaccinate people in their 20s, 30s, 40s because they're the ones giving it to the people well, this 50 and this 60 exactly. who are going to die from it.
4: I'm, not, I'm joking when I say you've listened to our show, but this is exactly what we've been talking about over the last 18 months. Do you give it to the people that are going to die quickly or the people that are going to spread it more often?
3: Well, the, the quicker impact will be to reduce mortality. There was a great biostatistician named William Farr. You'll like this quotation. He said, the death rate is a fact. Everything else is an inference. <laughs> That's good. He's definitely
0: true. Um, God, I have so many questions I could ask you. I want to piggyback on, uh, Eric's kind of question having to do with, uh, the two-sided nature of the, of the problem. And I don't think the CDC is in a position to judge the entirety of the problem, particularly let's think about, say schools and some of the advice given to schools was very, um, to say the word onerous would be, would be an understatement. Um, and many schools just found it impossible to, to, to do that. And, and therefore didn't even open. And we ended up with this multi-tiered very diverse system where lots and lots of mostly every private school opened um, and the public schools in lots of the country stayed closed. I was just in California. They're still closed. They're not opening until September yet many other parts of the country stayed wide open. And this is a t- tricky balance because you're, you're in funny data territory. You don't really know what, what the, what the marginal effects or I should say, partial derivative on X, Y, and Z, um, uh, um, protective measure you might take is compared to the loss of school <laughs> and, and what that causes in this massive amorphous way. Um, and so I felt that it was that was so much of a cause of the political kind of scandal, if you will, around the CDC, because it was kind of like stay in your lane, buddy. Uh, or maybe I don't know if I'm saying it properly. What do you think?
3: Yeah, uh, absolutely. And uh, it's interesting. I'm, I'm reminded and shook it just retired from CDC. When I got there, uh, it was just at the height of H1N1. And I hadn't heard that expression before, stay in your lane. Um, and, and I said, in public health, our lane is a superhighway. Um, and when it came to schools, if you looked at what I and others were saying from March of 2020 on, it was keep them open. They should be the last thing to close and the first thing to open for lots of reasons. Um, uh, health as well as economic and educational and societal. Um, and what we learned, we put out guidance back in June, July of last year because it was pretty clear what you needed to do. You need a layered approach. You need to have masks. You need to have better ventilation. You need to de-densify to the extent possible. You need to stop high-risk activities like choirs or cafeterias with lots of kids shouting and eating in one place. You need to have a way of dealing with cases when they inevitably occur. And when you have vaccine, you need to get people vaccinated and you need a way of on a case-by-case basis, dealing with kids or adults who have special vulnerability and can't be there. That's not rocket science, but it's not easy. It's not cheap. It's not simple, but it's extraordinarily important. And it's one of the many ways in which we failed our society, we failed our kids by not keeping schools open as long as we could have and reopening them as soon as we should have. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. So one of the, Adi's line there is consistent with where we've ended up on this whole thing. Tom, which is a frustration that there's not enough flexibility in the guidelines. And it's not just from CDC. It's a, you know, on municipi- municipalities even that w- there's not a great distinction between where the real risks are and where the lesser risks are. And it feels like maybe some of these things weren't known initially, but they became known and nobody was very good at that kind of flexibility. It was either all the way shut down or all the way open when in fact we needed a little bit more discrimination. I think
3: writing guidelines is an art and a science, and it's always a tightrope walk. Uh, on the one hand, you're dealing with interest groups. On the other hand, you're dealing with imperfect data. When we did our guidance a year ago, we thought what we call fomites or contaminated surfaces are more important than they appear now. We didn't recognize how important ventilation was. So those are things that have changed over time. But the basics are, are not different. It's the Swiss cheese model, right? I mean, where you're getting problems is where there is a hole in every slice of the cheese that you get through. So you want as many layers as possible to limit the risk. And you want to focus on the really important layers like masking and high risk behaviors. Mm
4: -hmm. How much does the CDC, because one of the other topics that we talk about besides uncertainty on this show is since we're statisticians, we talk about heterogeneity. So how much does the CDC think about what I'll call aggregate lives saved versus, you know in some sense, there's just massive heterogeneity, maybe even at the block level, county level, et cetera. And what we do, our guidance could, in some sense, I don't want to call them intentional winners and losers, but a a guidance we give could raise the level in one area, decrease it in another. And in some sense, it's hard to come up with things that are winner take all, like mass, yes, but other things could improve one area and decrease another. How much is that thought about?
2: One, one one other variation on that is just different policies for geography A versus geography B, which is tough to do politically.
4: Great, but great, to very political. just- yeah, Tom, if you were in my home field of marketing, we do targeted advertising pricing all the time. But as Cade said, maybe that's not as easy to do with things like public health.
3: It's really important. You segment the audience in public health also. You figure out. What are the messages? What are the messengers that are going to work most effectively? You have framework guidance and recommendations that are science-based and can be adapted or adjusted to local strengths. Um, I've worked on uh, infectious disease outbreaks for decades. And what I recognize is that every community has strengths. And the key to stopping an infectious disease outbreak is identifying and enlisting those strengths in stopping the outbreak. The other thing that CDC has done is have the social vulnerability index. So you have a sense of the risk of different areas, Uh, an area that, that we advocated for for a year until we finally got fed up and just did it with the New York Times was that there should be a risk alert level system that you should know as a matter of empowerment how hard it's raining COVID in your community, because you can then make an informed decision. I'm not going to go out today, or I'm going to wear a mask, or I'm going to wear an N95 mask when I go out today. And um, that's gotten millions and millions of hits on the time site. And we think it's really useful. We think that should have been national policy. That should have been uh, standardized across the country. And it should have been associated with decisions at the local level of what you do at each level. The, The rain is the same. It's raining hard or it's not raining hard, whether it's Utah or South Carolina or Maine. But maybe one of those places decides to open churches with masks. Another place decides to close schools. Another place decides to keep businesses open. That's a societal decision. That's a values decision. And the key is that it be made transparently and with a respect and understanding for the people who are most vulnerable and what they may have to deal with.
2: Tom, uh, an interesting issue that has arisen in this pandemic is a result of kind of the democratization of data and analytics. And you, public health experts, have had the blessing and the curse of a bunch of backseat drivers on this pandemic, people who think they know better and in some cases seem to have made contributions, which I can imagine is um, challenging to, to be the expert and have people one say it. And sometimes, actually, it feels like there were some contributions. How do you think about that? Especially having been and still are at the top of the field, is it, how much is it threatening? Do you think? How do you think that the, the epidemiologists have borne up under this kind of mixed blessing and curse? What's your take on modeling in an era when anybody can do it? Anybody can access the data. You've got some real, you know, talent out there. How do we incorporate that without screwing things up? What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think more transparency
3: is a really good thing, and I'll never have to explain to someone again what an epidemiologist does. <laughs> uh, <and laughs> there true. are some really good examples of people, and I think of uh, Yu Yanggu (YYG) as he's referred to mm-hmm. uh, as a great example of mm-hmm. someone who did terrific modeling. And his modeling was done really well because he kept his assumptions simple and he kept recursively analyzing them. With data, so from early on, we thought this guy is it, and he did way better oh, that's great. than many, many other places. So that's a good example of democratization. Talking, Tom, we're about,
2: glad to hear that because we had him on the show a month ago.
3: Great. Well, I I would give. I wrote an article in the Washington Post entitled uh, "Kind of." The, the risks of amateur epidemiology. Mm. And someone wrote back saying it was kind of a el- snotty elitist thing <laughs> for me to say, because people are just trying to understand the data that's life and death. And I, I thought the letter writing, the letter writer was, was accurate in his critique of me. Um, but, but actually, I was being too polite. I wasn't actually talking about amateurs. I was talking about people in public health schools who've never actually worked on an epidemic, but who are pontificating, you know, with great certainty about things. So that, oh, there, there aren't that many people who have deep experience with uh, epidemics, um, and they weren't necessarily the people making the readiest sound bites that the news media <laughs>
2: were picking up. Right, right.
0: Yeah, I'm just going to follow up with one of the things that I observed. We all observed was that it was this this COVID epidemic was almost impossible to forecast. It was every time you thought it would go up, it'd go down, and the models, the the, the standard mathematical models, kind of had assumptions in them that just were just not maybe even appropriate for historical epidemics, but just weren't appropriate for this one in particular. The incredible heterogeneity of the illness's effect on on, uh, on on its victims. So the older were deeply, deeply um, uh, affected, much, more, and the younger, essentially not at all. And the impact on behavior um, and, and how that just, and that, that feedback loop in the model made it almost impossible to forecast because the people most, most at risk would change their behavior fastest. And so it was hard to figure out where the masks, um, you know, what the effect was because people were jumping ahead of the curve. You had whole societies were closing down before mandates were actually happening. And I thought the, the amateurs did, did pretty well. Um, I, I mean, I'm, it's not really a question, I guess I have an observation, but I, I'm, I was cheering the, 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 I guess the, the amateurs, um, most of them because they were very data driven. Uh, they didn't come with models uh, that they had learned in school, and I was particularly critical, I think, of the epidemiologists because they had models they learned in school. But Adi, but Adi I'm a, so
2: you, you're you're a, you're were a theorist. You are a theorist. You love models. Come on, I man! Did. Just I, because I data won this one doesn't mean data was, are always well, right. Really I working. think, for, but well,
0: the key is let's. What was the quote? Keynes again, right? The, the right. idea is that when you're learning, you're not working. You got to adapt.
3: The it was really clear to us from early on as public health specialists that any prediction that went out beyond three or four weeks was completely unreliable. Uh, and so we never made them. We we criticized them when they were made. Uh, a model is useful if it gets you to change behavior, whether that is um, to change the policies or whether that is to uh, prepare for a surge in hospitals or whether that is to target your interventions in a certain direction. Um, so uh, I felt that, some of the modeling—it felt macabre to me, kind of like uh, betting on how many deaths there are going to be, as if it were kind of pieces of bubble gum in a in a glass jar. Uh, and the, that's not the point of modeling. It shouldn't be the point of modeling. It should be what do we need to do, and uh, then. Looking at experience, did it work? Did our expected result have the courage of your convictions to say, we think if we do X, we'll get Y. If it didn't happen, say we were wrong and we're going to figure out why and do something different next time.
2: Um, Before we let you go, we got to get a little bit of big picture thinking from you. This is the biggest pandemic to hit the world in a hundred years. We're going to ask you the same question we asked Lauren Ansel Myers when we had her on a couple of months ago. Is it going to be another hundred years before we see one of these? Uh,
3: uh not likely um the fact is um we are a more interconnected world um the two main drivers of new uh pandemics are the two things that are being debated about the origin of this one one animal human interface there's more of it as we encroach on nature more two uh, dangerous laboratory work there's more of it and it's unregulated globally so whatever was the origin of this pandemic, the fact is we need to do better at tamping down both of those things. And especially, we need to do better at building global systems to find, stop, and prevent health threats. Because that makes a huge difference. We, we at Resolve to Save Lives have spent the last four years uh, helping more than 100 countries document more than 10,000 life-threatening gaps preparedness we know how to close them it's going to cost billions of dollars for a decade but we can do that and we think there's a way to hold the world accountable for that we call that 717 that every new outbreak of any disease should be able to be identified within seven days investigated response begun and reported within one day and effective response implemented within seven days so we, we do think that we can change the world with this this is the most teachable moment we're going to have In our lifetimes, in all likelihood, whether
2: we'll learn is
3: another question.
2: Tom, just to be clear, you're talking about Resolve to Save Lives, which is your current enterprise, your founder and CEO of this. I'm assuming that your motivation for founding that company is the increasing rate at which we see these kinds of outbreaks. Is that fair to say?
3: When I left CDC, I was fortunate to get philanthropic donations from generous donors, and we created this non-governmental, non-profit organization that has two main goals. One of them is reducing the risk of epidemics, and the second is reducing heart attacks and strokes, which is the world's leading killer.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very neat. Well, Listen, we appreciate your taking the time to discuss this issue with us. We wish you the best with the work you're doing. We hope to hear more about it down the road. Thank you. It's a pleasure speaking with you all. Absolutely. Dr. Tom Frieden, formerly head of the CDC under the Obama administration, currently founder and president of Resolve to Save Lives. That has been the first quarter and our pandemic quarter here on Wharton Moneyball. We still have three.
4: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio.
2: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second quarter now, open mic. Going to hear from the guys what they are most interested in. We're always interested in hearing from you too. You guys can jump into the conversation. Hit us up on Twitter, at w Moneyball is our handle there, at WMoneyBall. Send us questions, complaints, ideas, whatever you got. Great way to reach out. We're all on Twitter. We follow all of our guests. Our feed follows all of our guests. Um, you can also hit us up on email. We have a mailbag of sorts, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at Wharton.upen.edu. We read them all. We get as many of them as we can onto the air, and we love hearing from you. So drop us a note. All right, guys. We've only got Bradlow for about half this segment, maybe a little bit more, and it may, t- that may take that long for him to work out all his venom about the Sixers dropping Game Seven. I don't know. There were some things that happened, Eric. Do you have thoughts on the Sixers number one seed knocked out in the conference quarters? Qu- conference semis, NBA quarters.
4: Well, lots of things, but let me let me start with what I've been saying all along, um, and this showed especially in this series. So. How many times on Morton Money Bowl have I said, when your best player (laughs) is your center, you can't win games at the end because you can't get him the ball often enough, and he's not the one with the ball in his hands. Let's compare that to the Atlanta Hawks, whose best player is Trey Young. Their second best player is probably, maybe it's Herder. Their third best player or their second best player is Collins. And so these are all people that take the ball up the court, can create their shots, and have the ball in their hands. So that's problem number one. Secondly, actually, I wasn't as upset about losing game seven, although, yes, that was awful. Um, How about losing the game where you were up game five, where you were up 26 points, where according to ESPN Power Index, you had a 99.7% chance to win (laughs) that game. How about losing game four? where you were up 15 or 16 in the second half as well. And so, you know, people have said to me, wow, those Atlanta Hawks are good. Absolutely not. If you're the <laughs> Milwaukee Bucks right now, you've got to be saying we hit the jackpot here. We're playing the Atlanta Hawks. I predict, I, I mean, it's a prediction. Who knows? I think the Bucks win this series in five. I don't think the Hawks, look, the Sixers should have won this series in five. The Sixers blew two games with Big, big second-half leads. At worst, it should have been a six-game series. Um, But, no, the the Sixers are a deficient team. And it's the worst possible scenario because you're stuck now, in my view, with two contracts, Ben Simmons being one, Tobias Harris being the other, and you've got problems. And that's the problems the Sixers have right now.
0: Just tell me a little bit about Ben Simmons because he just looked – Absolutely ridiculous at, towards the ends of the games. First of all, he can't shoot foul line from the foul line. That's almost embarrassing. Worst in the history
4: of the NBA. I know you saw the stat, audit. He shot 31% from the line. It's the worst in the history of anybody in the NBA in the playoffs. Anybody. That's will right. Chamberlain, <laughs> notoriously. I mean, we've had guys shoot 45, 50, he shot 31%.
2: Well, and there's knock on consequences. Now he doesn't want to shoot in the fourth quarter.
4: Well, and it's that's it's a real not problem. Just not want to shoot, but here was the real problem I had was, I mean, yeah, everyone talks about the dunk he should have taken after you know he uh, he beat Gallinari. He didn't dunk the ball. He passed it off. The guy got blocked and fouled. And only made forget that. When Ben Simmons gets the ball, a loose ball, you know what his job is, Adi? It's very simple. Do your job push the ball up the court. That's his job. Push the ball up the court. And whether you shoot or not, pitch it out to a three-point shooter. How many times, I don't know how much of the game you watched. How many times did you see him get a long rebound and he'll get to half court and then go sideways? I'm like, sideways? The basket's over there. Your job is to push the ball. And even if you're not going to shoot, create shots for other people. For not only was he afraid to get fouled, he was afraid even to take the ball into the lane. And as a matter of fact, he didn't even want the ball in his hands because you can foul him then. And then he's yeah. got to go, get shooting. Uh, uh, so right. Foul him yeah. 80 feet I, from the basket yeah. with his ball in his hands. But I'm a, you, you started off by blaming Embiid.
0: Uh, not, I mean, the team that made Embiid no, the no, best no, player. No, you no, blame no. him.
4: Embiid was a hero in that series.
0: Yeah, he but wasn't this the- a
4: collapse of Ben Simmons? Didn't he cost the team everything? This is, really seems to be on him. No, 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 no. What I said was, you have a poorly defined team for the playoffs. Mm-hmm. The best player on your team, which is Embiid by far, is your center. It's not Embiid's fault. Embiid did everything humanly possible. Well, it's- he had a
2: terrible second half in game five. I mean, that, he that, had a terrible second
4: something. half in game five, which I lambasted him. He was 0 for 12, which was also a record. No one had ever been 0 for 12 in, in, the, a second, half. in, in the second half of the game. Um, but again, uh, no, it wasn't, but
2: Eric, what's the, what's the, what's the best improvement we've ever seen in a professional player's careers at the free throw line? I mean, what, is this salvageable? This doesn't seem to me to be salvageable.
4: Well, let's just be clear. I'm pretty sure Matt Dats can put it up on the screen. I'm pretty sure from the free throw line, Ben Simmons was 60 or 61% this season, which by the way is improved. He then went down in the last series. In the first series, he was down at 50%. And then this series down at like 30 something. Oh my God. No, 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 He actually had improved at the free throw line. So he was, I, I'm pretty sure this season he shot somewhere around 60% from the line. Um, no, he could be a, if you're a 70% foul shooter in the NBA, you are a more than adequate foul shooter in the NBA. LeBron James, by the way, this year, Shot in the low 70s. This was not a great year for LeBron at the foul line either. Mm-hmm. But no, Ben Simmons can absolutely learn to shoot 70% from the foul line. It's absolutely possible.
2: Well, then you need him to do it under pressure as well. And we know even the whole league dips a little bit in pressure situations. There, You can see it in the data. It's not huge, but you can see it in the data. It's a real thing. And you're talking about him dropping to 50 and then to 30. That's some serious mental stuff going on.
4: Well, also, I think there was something like, I don't know, this. that was something like he went to the line to sh- 50 times to shoot both free throws and only four of those 50 times did he make both. So right. now you start to compute right. expected points, right? Yeah, and right. Adi, this is the problem. Is yeah, that- just foul him. Yeah, fou- don't even, you don't even have to foul him in the last two minutes. Yeah, I was exactly right, 61% on the year. Don't just foul him, Adi. Foul him all the time. He yep. gets a rebound, foul him. He, he's dribbling well,
2: you get to worry about the penalty. The, there's the penalty him
4: shooting. Just foul I, him.
2: Well, you don't want to put the team in the penalty. though. That's one downside. But 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 I'm I'm I mean, I just don't see. I just don't see. I just don't see it. OK, let's I, jump. Chuck, to, you, well, I just want
0: to ask one thing about, you know, there's this whole idea of shooting underhand. Why doesn't he learn how to do it? Uh, apparently, I could I could be taught to, to shoot 70 percent if I well, shoot underhand.
2: No, nobody's done that since Rick Barry. There's hey, just they too try much to convince
1: Shaq to do it too. And you yeah. know, it just doesn't have, you know, it's just, there's well, too much the of you know, a stigma today, on it.
4: I, something strange I heard today was that Ben Simmons quote was I'm willing to con- consider shooting with the other hand. I'm like, what? <laughs> he's by the way, he's left-handed, although he's very good with both hands. He's saying now if it, this is what it takes, I'll shoot righty. I'm like, that's how far it's come. Now he's got to shoot with the other. I mean, it, I, but I think personally, he did have one good point, though, in the game. His point was, and he's trying to defend himself, obviously. His point was, um, did you guys see that Trey Young went five for 20 in game seven? Did not. Uh, that's his comment. His, that was, this is Ben Simmons. Did you see that their best player went five for 20, mostly by me guarding him? So mm-hmm. I think we also have to recognize Ben Simmons' strengths, which is most 6'10 players his size can't move. They can't defend on the perimeter well. Well, he did force Trey Young into a lot of bad shots. Whoever he covers is not going to shoot well during that game. Mm-hmm. So on, on the one hand, he kills our offense. And that, by the way, is the problem. And uh, Daryl Morey, our guy, said it today. He said that we're a bad offensive team. And especially, by the way, there was a point in game, game seven, maybe during the fourth quarter, where I think uh, Atlanta had a total of four or five total turnovers. And what it proved to me was if the other team doesn't turn the ball over. The Sixers will not score enough points to beat a good team. And yeah, that, right. that's it what Atlanta was... figured out. We'll put three or four ball handlers on the court. We just won't turn the ball over. And, and the Sixers are going to have to play half-court offense. It's five on four because we know Simmons isn't going to shoot the ball. We probably – our other player on the court is probably Theibel. He's not a shooter of the ball. So now we're basically playing five on three.
2: Well, it's going to be interesting to see what Daryl does about it. I mean, he's obviously a thoughtful, resourceful guy. He was making – he made moves every offseason. He was constantly doing something to try to tweak that roster. So it'll be very interesting to see what he does with the Philly roster. Look, you you mentioned the, the Bucs getting the these Hawks in the next round. The Bucks, the Bucks nets series was extraordinary. Extraordinary. And then the Bucks nets game seven took it up a level yet again. It was – one of the most intense basketball games I've watched halfway through the game. I'm like, hold on. This is, they've got two, whoever wins this has two more series in front of them before they win an NBA championship. This looked like NBA championship level basketball. That The two qualities of it that struck me most other than just the drama of the ending was the lead was never more than five points. And most of it was within like two. Um, And the other was the quality of play. We we exchanged some texts mid game. It's like, man, you just got to see, you got to love it when, when players are converting, you know, it's not, it's not junky basketball. It's just everybody's playing at a very high level. Now the overtime was a different thing. I mean, you could just see everything change. They just left everything in regulation and everything was different in overtime. But it was an extraordinary basketball game.
4: I think there's two interesting theories you could take about that series. You say, look, it went to game seven, overtime in game seven. The net the Bucks won. But the Bucks beat a Nets team with, I'm literally saying this facetiously, one and a half of their superstars. You had Durant yeah. playing, yeah. you had Irving not at all in, and you had James Harden on one leg. However, this is one of those cases where you say, well, the Nets would have blown them out. If Remember, this is one of the things I said about the Nets in the beginning. There's only one basketball in the NBA. So you say to yourself, well, they would have been better with Harden and Irving. Uh, I don't know about that. You're telling me you would have rather had them shooting than Durant shooting? I mean, it's not like all of a sudden because three guys are there, they're getting double the number of shots. Mm -hmm. They're still probably going to get the same number of possessions, and every shot one of them takes is a shot less Durant takes, and he didn't do so bad with the ball. So you have to be careful about how you analyze the injuries and say – That's
2: fair. That's well, let's not
4: say Durant would have played better. If
2: well, that that, I, I want I do, I do, to say a little bit of that because they, he might have had more gas in OT if he hadn't had to do what he had to do at the end of the
4: game. And By every way, time they came I down do the court, they the were Nets just – I do think the Nets would have won this series if those guys were healthy. There's no reason to believe – there's no evidence that they would have been worse than they were, and they came within his, as he said, my big 17-size feet, <laughs> my right. toe on the line, they would have won the series.
2: Yeah. All right, Eric. Anything out of, before we lose you? Anything out of the West? We saw the Suns get up on the Clippers in Game One. That's good fun.
4: Well, I'm, I'm that's for,
2: without CP three too.
4: I, I I'm very so. This is one of the th- interesting questions you have to ask. Let's imagine both CP three. Let's pretend for the moment. I don't think it's true, but let's imagine he was out for this entire series. And let's imagine on the Clippers side, uh, Kawhi Leonard's out for the entire series. Which team is actually more affected by that? Because you would, on the surface, you would say, well, it has to be the Clippers and Kawhi Leonard because mm-hmm. he's their best defensive player. He's their best offensive player. He's kind of the, one of the smartest players in the NBA. I'm not sure that's true. I think the Clippers better be very, very worried in this series. I think the Suns are a very good team. They're well coached. I think as soon as CP3 comes back, they're going to get even a lot better on offense. And I'm actually excited because I happen to be taking my son out to Los Angeles this weekend uh, for a summer camp. And we're going to game four of that series. Are you really?
2: Oh, you that's That's awesome.
4: And that's so, awesome. Um, I, yeah, I, all I would say is, is that Hold on,
2: don't you have another son out in L.A.? So is this a two son game you're going to be going to on? Well,
4: I do have a son out in LA. Um, although, uh, because of COVID times, he's working remotely. So he's actually not in LA at the moment. Okay. But yes. I have a son that's permanently that works out in LA, but yeah, no. Um, I think the Suns have been underappreciated. I think the Suns, as I remember, um, they swept the team in the last round. Um, And matter of fact, every playoff series, this playoffs in the NBA has been like, you know, I guess the Hawks beat the Knicks four to one, but every series has been, you know, four, two, four, three, et cetera, except for the Suns. So I think all of us, I think the Suns have now won six or seven straight playoff games. That's not easy to do against teams that are, that are playoff caliber teams. So I'm starting to believe in the Suns.
2: Let's talk about Chris Paul and um, obviously some comments made by Beasley out of the NFL on COVID vaccination. I I, I think, I mean, are these, I just feel like people are overthinking this. I don't understand what kind of teammate puts themselves in this position where you may not be available for big games by not taking a shot. I mean, that's just,
4: let me just say, by the way, I I don't know if this is true. I heard that, um, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, Chris Paul, someone else, let's say it was Matt Barnes, someone else who's a retired NBA player who spoke to Chris Paul. The claim is, is that Chris Paul was vaccinated. So Chris Paul was vaccinated. By the way, we don't have evidence yet whether Chris Paul can't play because he's a breakthrough case. Actually, I don't know whether Chris Paul has COVID or he was exposed directly to somebody with COVID and he's out for that reason. Maybe you guys have seen it. I haven't seen which of the two it is, actually. So actually, I don't know the answer, but he was vaccinated.
2: Well, the, the, the same question for um John Rom. Remind me. I mean, that, that was a failure to vaccinate. No, he came in positive, right? At in the memorial. Case,
4: he was vaccinated too late. So he was not fully vaccinated. I see. And so um, that's when he had to pull out of the memorial six strokes behind six strokes ahead going into the final round. At,
2: at least he didn't have teammates he could let down. I mean, the Beasley thing is just crazy and he doubles down on it. I mean, I just I just don't I just can't understand how you'd Consider yourself doing what you need to do as a teammate, and and you're vulnerable to being outed. You know, game day.
4: Oh, Much less- this is this is a strange NBA playoffs. Um, as Matt put on our screen, um, I even forgot um, the Suns were down two one to the Lakers. That's who they beat first. They beat the yeah. Lakers. They, were <laughs> up, they, they won three straight against the Lakers, I'm pretty sure, to win that series 4-2. Then they won four straight. Somebody will remind me who they beat in the second round. I think the Suns now have won eight straight playoff games.
2: Well, they're they're fun to pull for. And by the way, I'm just completely wrong about Chris Paul. So I'm just uninformed. He was apparently vaccinated in February. So he's got a breakthrough case. Not bad for us to be No, reminded. Thanks,
4: Matt. The Nuggets. Yeah. So now the Suns have won eight straight playoff games. Um, I know the Shane Jensen rule about, you know, what's their probability at this point? Now, of course, they're up one nothing. Uh, so we have to give them a little more than 25 percent. But I have to think the Suns have got to be the favorite at this point. They just have to be. What, what odds would you give them now, Shane? I always like to hear your odds right now. Um, Are you willing to go higher than 30% or no way?
1: No. Maybe, yes. Yeah, no, I, I would go, I would, but not much higher. Not much
2: higher. Well, so, I mean, the, it was hard to watch. I mean, I, I ended up, in the end, being impressed with the Bucks. And basically, whenever some of the surrounding cast started stepping up, they didn't for a long time, but toward the end of the game, the second half, especially they, in that game seven, they, when those guys step up, they've got quite a team. It's not, so let me it's exactly, not just about.
4: One question, Kate. I only have one question for you. Who is the best player on the Milwaukee Bucks? Giannis. What position does
2: he play? <laughs> the Brad
4: way, Who are the best players on the Phoenix Suns? Chris Paul and Devin Booker. Yeah. All right. All right. We've got some stand with it.
2: All right. We have a strong test of the Bradlow hypothesis. That'll be fun. If the Suns make it through, that'll be fun. All uh, right. We'll see, it. We'll see you odds. next time. Well, he's just giving he's giving, you know, ignorance priors at one quarter for everybody. Um, Suns higher now, of course, because they took game one. And the Hawks, they don't, they don't get a full quarter. We don't believe in them yet. Right. So um, well, that'll be fun. It's fun to be a little bit more engaged on that. NHL playoffs side of things. All right, guys, what else in the world of sports? we got a little bit more time here in Q2. I'm curious having worked some of the venom out about the Sixers. What else have y'all been paying attention to?
0: Well, I know that uh, I, I obviously are paying quite a bit of attention to baseball. Um, I watched the basketball. The Sixers were just sort of very devastating. I was just keeping it uh, half an eye on it. And, uh, and, and then of course the Brooklyn, the Brooklyn collapse, there collapse, if you will, it was a great series it was just sort of, too bad, particularly for the New York, New York uh, crowd.
2: I know, Audi there for a while, it felt like a research, It's like a, as long, how long has it been since Long Island had such a good sports moment? We had, uh, this is what's going on. The Islanders were into the conference finals and they were, did they win the first game even? The, yeah. the Mets were leading their division. The Mets were Ma- still leading
0: their division. And they're still, leading, they're the only ones that are
2: still holding up their end of the deal. Yeah. But the Mets, Islanders, and Nets. We're all having great sports moments. How long has it been since Long Island has had that kind of success?
0: Oh, I've been I mean, down, 60s? I do track that the Islanders are is supposed to, but, but, well, I
1: don't Mets, know how. Really, I mean, the, the Islanders. Bruce... Won, I, I don't know how good the Mets were at the time. I mean, you see, but the Islanders won like they had a moment three or four Stanley Cups in a row in the early '80s. So that
2: was. Oh, the, was it that? Was it that? Yeah, okay. the Mets had a good yeah. year. I think
0: that overlapped with that. Well, the Brooklyn, you know, the Nets were in New Jersey, so so it's not like this is. The, the Brooklyn yeah, it's, it's so really it's so
2: really the old... uh,
1: historically it's really only the Islanders and 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 uh, okay the Mets. That you can well,
2: I think about, about. them as they're they're all kind of the 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 B team. The New York B team and all three. That's cases. right. Even when they were in New Jersey, so it wasn't Long Island, but it was the New York B team among basketball.
1: And if you throw, I mean, if you are willing to throw New Jersey into the B team move, you oh, know, yeah. thing, you also have the New Jersey Devils won several Stanley Cups in the nine, a couple Stanley Cups in the nineties.
2: Oh, uh, interesting, right? Wow. Yeah. All right, so we've got a little baseball talk. audi obviously, been talking uh, Yankees. We'll do that in Q three. That has been the first half of Wharton. but we still have a half to go. Can I can join us? after the break
4: you're listening to wharton moneyball
2: on business radio welcome back welcome back to q3 of wharton moneyball another open mic segment we are without eric Bradley, but we got the whole rest of the team here shane jensen back from shane jensen land Adi weiner on an ipad today oddy's got new technology don't know what the story is on that. It's been not, it's not, it hasn't been your friend the last hour. I can tell you that much. Buddy, you were just talking about baseball. We, you, we haven't talked Yankees in a while. Y'all had this cool triple play thing happen. So what in baseball have you been paying attention to?
0: Well, certainly the triple play is fascinating because the Yankees, this is a third triple play the Yankees have had this season. And I, uh, I know that this is historic for the Yankees, but I believe triple plays are extraordinarily rare Um and uh, they rival the rarity of a no hitter, which, but maybe not quite as rare. So, but Matt, he's reading us.
2: Matt says 727 in baseball history. Now, they've been playing baseball for about 400 years. So, this is like <laughs> a couple of years.
0: So, 140 <laughs> is usually, but in the modern era, I'm not sure where that record counts. But basically, what he's saying is it's something like seven a year, maybe, yeah, maybe eight, a few, yeah. a little fewer than that. Yeah. Um, ba- no hitters have been averaging something in that, in that neighborhood. Um, so, okay. they're not, they're, they're, they're approximately, Uh, the equivalent frequency to have three within a, within a short very period of time seems unusual. One of the ones Yankee side was really odd with lots of crazy base running. And the next thing you know, all three base runners are out. Uh, That was the the second one of the season. This one was very conventional. No hitter. I mean, sorry, no hitter uh, triple play runner on first and second hard shot. The third steps on the base throws to second throws to first. This is the sort of the canonical, if you will, if you're going to get a triple play, this is the one you're going to get. Um, what was remarkable about it, at least to me, was it was a walk off triple play, walk off.
2: Yeah, that's which, really cool. Really, really is, cool.
0: And 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 Aroldis Chapman looked terrible. Ter- ter- <laughs> right through ten pitches, nine for balls, nothing anywhere close to the plate. Two two guys on, so you're looking at you, you know you're looking at a, a very difficult situation for him, and then an unbelievable shot at maybe 110 miles per hour down the line. Gio Urshela, who's a terrific fielder, was shifted exactly where he needed to be, steps on the bag, and and puts it So he was on
2: the line, basically.
0: He was on the line, which is another thing, which is as an old-timer baseball fan, we used to get these shots down the line that were doubles. And in today's positioning with a righty, pull hitter, these are outs. And Mm. so... That was very disappointing. I mean, this is a common. I mean, good for the Yankee. Well, fans. so
2: let's let's be precise. They probably had three guys on the left side of the infield. Is that is it shifted that I far don't around? Sh-
0: wouldn't be for sure if they had three, but I know that they had three shifted heavily over. So the, okay. the second baseman was probably quite behind the bag.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, right. Okay. And
0: and that's the other thing. Shots up the middle now are outs in the way that my eye always predicted them to be.
2: Yes. So, do, are y'all players. supporters? Are y'all you're old school Audi? Do you want do you want the shift to be eliminated or restricted in some way? No,
0: I don't want to restrict it. I want our, I want the players to start to learn how to hit and use all the fields. Uh, they don't shift on DJ Lemayu because he uses all the fields. They don't shift too much on on guys like Aaron Judge because he also uses all the field. They don't bunt. They don't they don't change their approach. And okay. the argument, of course, is that hit the ball out. And the other thing I'm seeing a lot of this year is balls to the warning track. These are these are balls that would have left the field last year
1: when, with that. We, we'd have to basically wait and be patient and watch some pretty awful hitting for like <laughs> five to 10 years. <laughs> Cause Aaron judge is not learning how to bunt effectively at this point no. in his career. No. You know, you, what you're really saying is please, you know, the 12 to 15 year olds out there start learning to bunt because we'd really like you to be able to avoid shifts <laughs> By the time you hit your actual professional career,
0: well, alternatively, (laughs) we could just
1: restrict uh, shifting, like right now.
0: Well, okay, so we can let's just take the first part of your of your uh, your your first point you made. I don't think it's the twelve to fifteen year olds. The problem is the minor leagues, where these things really become um, learned and effective at high speed pitching. The reason why they don't learn in the minor leagues is to get promoted, you have to hit home runs. So why are you wasting time getting hitting you know bunting and for hitting to opposite fields when that's not going to get you in the majors in the first place? Yeah, so, I, I, so that's a catch twenty two. I, I mean, um, I, 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 agree. Say, I
1: agree. I it could get greater priority in the minor leagues, but the selection bias to, against bunting and towards power hitting by the time you even get to the minor leagues, it is going to take a lot um, of years to undo that.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's been a, it's been a slow transition to get I mean, where if, we are. Maybe if you, you kind of
1: want bunting speedsters. You know, in 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 baseball, that is, I I do think you're gonna. I mean, sure, we can start incrementally improving it from this point forward, but I think, you know, it's obviously, it is certainly a quicker solution to Shane, try and like what, do what, something about shifting. Shane, right how now. would you
2: operationalize a, a restriction on shifting?
1: Oh, a really easy operationalization, which may not actually completely, would certainly not completely correct it, but you just make a rule that you have to have two infielders on either side of second
2: at all times. Yeah, yeah. Just that, that alone. Yeah, you
1: know, at the start of the play. I mean, obviously they can sh- move around at one, once the once ball is hit. But like uh, when the pitcher – once the pitcher throws the, – as the pitcher's throwing the ball, you have to have two infielders on either side. And so that would eliminate some of the more dramatic shifts. It would be an interesting – But you – I mean, where now. would you –
2: like where would um, – let's take this shift that resulted in the triple play. Like how far would you let that second baseman move? Because you could – if you took the diagonal line from home plate through the pitching mound through second base – he can get way around there before he can't go any further. Alternatively, you could take like the base path from third to second as the restriction. And now he can't. Yeah, guess,
1: I'm just talking, talking, Gron, the straight line that intersects the catcher the pitcher, and second okay. base. So
2: he can still get quite a ways around it. He can, yeah, he can no, I mean, a...
1: the, like I said, it would only really okay. eliminate this kind of extreme shifting where you have three play, But that's often the case for, like, a lot of these sort of players, you know. I mean, okay. you know, you look at the field when David Ortiz was on or some of these other players or, or Stanton. I mean, there's, you know, three. You know, the, the third baseman is almost on the other side of second base himself, never mind this the shortstop.
0: Also worse, I don't think you'd be easily be able to have a, a short outfielder which is really devastating. Yeah, no, that, that, that's soccer.
1: right. That's right. I, the, the, other, the other part of this would be restricting the outfielders from fu- coming on the in, it, it, onto the infield or something like that. You got could it. also do that.
2: Okay, perfect. Guys, one thing they are changing in baseball right now is the sticky substance. So it started, I think, yesterday with inspections. DeGrom was the first one. He just happened to be the guy on the mound in the earliest game, and he got, test- he got checked coming off after the first inning so what is what is your position on the crackdown on sticky stuff
1: i mean it's, i
0: i don't ahead, think Adi. it's gonna work because i think what, too many, i don't think they're gonna be able to it, it, as soon as they as soon as the players know what the umpire's routine is yeah. to figure out a way to, to to beat it
1: yeah so yeah gonna, i mean baseball players are really good at cheating they are just <laughs> really good at cheating i mean on tradition know. Long tradition. And, and so sort of like, yeah, I mean, I'm with Audi. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, if it, if it's against the rules to have spider tech, they should be checking for it, but that it's going to be, you know, I mean, maybe they'll be able to kind of get rid of some of the more obvious, like these spider tech kind of, stuff, or catch some people using that, but the, you know, the kind of like, you know, immediately previous sort of generation of that technology where it's just Rosin plus sunscreen. I mean, unless you are ba- going to ban baseball players from, wearing sunscreen and using the rosin bag. I just don't see how you're going to actually eliminate it.
2: Well, so do we care about eliminating or do we just want to get spin rates back to where they were up until the last year or two?
1: I mean, yeah, I, I guess if you, yeah, I guess if we could reduce it, I mean, any, any way in which we can kind of reduce the amount of kind of tackiness that's happening. I, you know, so maybe, maybe it would help just to know they're checking. Maybe, you know, enough people, enough players would stop, or be more cautious about using it. And that would be kind of an incremental improvement. So,
0: so I'd be interested in, in getting rid of the spider tack and the sort of high tech sticky stuff and go back to the stuff they had been using for a long right. time, which may have been on the edge, the rosin plus sunscreen, but we know what that does. And I'm not so I I'd rather not that the rather the upper not be checking individual pictures, but more just checking what the team as a whole has done, which is easier to do conceivably because a spider tack leaves a residue. And if you have two sets of balls, you know, one for, for the home team, one for the away team, and we randomly decided in the beginning of the game so there's no, no fudging. And if the, the umpire just every now and then just, again, randomly decides to just pull a ball after, yeah. after a pitch, put it in for testing, and they can check the ball for the spider tack or whatever substance, and then, the, and then the team as a whole can get a grade. A grade and if a team is, is violating that uh, too often or, too, or however number of times, then some kind of measurement is taken against the team for having done so.
2: So, Adi, uh, this sounds great. I mean, is this – so this is a much better than, the ump, like, stopping, you know, the yeah. pitcher as he comes off the field and asking for his belt. I mean, this is – if we had that technology, why aren't we using that technology? Yeah.
0: Well, because I don't think it's as obvious as you think. I mean, we're, we're statisticians, right? So what we think immediately sampling and, and, and <laughs> technology, and I don't think – I think the the, the umpires think, think – policing right that's but that, we know they have
2: we know that in the investigation in recent weeks they have analyzed balls and so they should know something about how um evident it is when someone's been mm-hmm. using this stuff and so I, I don't know how confident you are that yeah it's so evident. so
1: yeah I'm, I'm intrigued by this technology where you can kind of check things relatively in, in real time well it's and not in could,
0: real time see see that's the thing my solution is not in real time it's just chemical analysis done after the game yeah right. and that
1: can't right, be right. done and there's no way of kind of doing like there's not like a I don't. Can
2: you imagine, can you imagine the way they try to gain that? People would be spitting tobacco all over that ball. There's just no telling, no telling what they would do to screw up the <laughs> yeah. chemical analysis.
1: I mean, I mean, another thing they could do, and this would not again help in real time during the game, but they could just basically, every time there's a strikeout, the umpire takes that ball, it goes into a special container, and te- every single one of those things is tested after the game. And punitive damages is, is, is laid out. It, not in a way that would be able to affect that game's outcome, but certainly would be able yeah. to punish yeah. the yeah, suspension for the pitcher.
2: Would be. I mean, the, the, yeah. the, the penalty they've been serious about these penalties. So if a guy gets busted, he can't be replaced on the roster. So for that ten-day suspension, or I think it's ten-day, they they're down a man, which mm-hmm. is uh, that's a pretty big. So it's not just on the guy; it's on the yeah. team, which is a nice way to do it. I mean, don't it is remarkable that we're living at a time where you could actually see the change in pitcher performance as precisely as we've seen it, apparently with the spin rates going down Um, over the last week or two, as they announced this thing, I mean, David Ross, the manager of the Cubs just came off and said something, but a lot of people have been commenting about it and it's just, it's remarkable to me. And and it's a lovely use of technology. It's like to snoop out um, changes and the impact of these kinds of regulations. Guys, I, I I tried to pimp the college world series to y'all or even before the college world series, because People have criticized Major League Baseball for nothing happening on the field anymore. Even long diehards like yourselves, there's just not very much happening on the field. College baseball things still happen on the field. I mean, people are bunting and stealing and all kinds of things. I encourage you to look at Omaha. They've got, we just started, we're two, two rounds. Every team's played, no, no. Yeah, every team's played two games now. And the first teams were eliminated. The first team was eliminated yesterday, another team was eliminated today. So we're down to six. And there's going to be some fun baseball over the next week or so, crowning a champion. I want to hear. I want to talk a little bit more about it, but I just want to pimp it a little bit because exactly what you've been missing in Major League Baseball is available in college
0: baseball. I'm going to just respond. Uh, I'm going to also watch it, uh, which is not something I've done in the past. One of the reasons why basketball and football is a is a more attractive sport, many reasons than baseball in the collegiate level. Is that in basketball and, and football you can guarantee that the players you're watching are the future stars of the professional world? Mm-hmm. Particularly, you know who they are pretty early. In college baseball, that's never been something you could do because right. it's so many years away, and also the draft bled off the, the best talent off into high from high school, and so you never saw them. That's changing, um, and I think analytics actually has a strong piece in that. One of the reasons why people are going to college more is the training facilities at some of these elite gotten schools. Better, yeah. Better than ever. You can actually get that driveline baseball, um, that incredible Rhapsody systems, all this stuff that's creating these pitchers. um, You're getting it at certain schools, not others. And that's attracting talent.
2: Yeah. So uh, you may not it's not going to be up and down the rosters. You don't see future major leaguers, but every team in Omaha has somebody. And, mm-hmm. and they do. And as part of the broadcast, side, they'll say, ah, this guy, you know, he was drafted in the fourth round, but he came to college. This guy's expected to be a high rounder that you, you right. do get that. And the top some of the, the top pitchers in the game, the college game are in Omaha and they're going to be very high draft picks. And so you do get an early look at some of these guys. Speaking of those top pitchers, that the, they've had two 15 strikeout performances oh, in the opening rounds in the, in the first two games which is pretty remarkable. Unfortunately, one of them was, was against my Texas Longhorns. <laughs> they struck out 21. Two pitchers combined for 21 strikeouts in the Longhorns' first loss. But that, um, that,
1: that's starting to sound more like the major leagues again. I, mean, I know, you know, I know. Is, is this a against... college game, actually? Because I, I was going to follow up on your comment that the college game is st- still somehow this more dynamic, yeah. less strikeout-based
2: um, I'm, game. I'm aware, it... I'm aware that I'm making a claim that is yeah. knowable. It's an empirical, knowable, claim that i don't have the empirics on but i strongly suggest but, but I, strongly I mean predict- if,
1: if, if it's true it would kind of kind of i guess support audi's earlier point that like you know a lot of that that even you know that a lot of the kind of development that's led us to this kind of more boring kind of state actually occurs sort of late in you know a professional baseball player's career in mm-hmm. which case maybe there's some hope we could actually kind of correct it a little bit um mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you know on, on a uh, kind of quicker
2: time scale I want to share a little just one last thing on the on the college baseball because David Arkow is doing some nice sim. David, I mentioned him last week because he made this, he wrote us an email. So mailbag guys, mailbag. He dropped us a mailbag complaining about our discussion of tennis. He wasn't really complaining, but he was he was informing our discussion of tennis seeds, which I thought was really helpful. But it turns out that he does some modeling for college baseball and he's updating daily. His Twitter handle is David underscore R David underscore R updating daily, his probabilities of winning. So let me just give it to you real quick. Just let me tell you the Wolfpack, North Carolina state. There may be a few listeners who are down there in Raleigh, North Carolina. They have had the most impressive performance of the postseason. They're the ones who knocked out Arkansas. Arkansas was head and shoulders. Number one seed, top, top team. They were like seven to four to win this thing. And they got knocked out in the super regionals by NC state and NC state has been, 2-0 and so far. They're the first and 2-0 team um, in their first two games in Omaha. So they're looking very strong. r going into today after NC State won a second game yesterday, 45% chance to capture the title. So both in a good position and a strong team. So it's going to be fun to watch the tournament, see what David does with his Sims, um, encourage you to take a little bit of a look that way. All right, guys. Um, what else around the world of sports has your attention right now?
0: Well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep us on the baseball um, Shohei Ohtani. You, you cannot uh, ignore this at this yeah. point. Yeah, is, all- it is tw- it's his twenty-third major league-leading home run. It's at as- two point eight ERA.
2: <laughs> That's crazy. And and it's,
1: it's 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 a wasted opportunity. I'm actually now angry uh-huh. that the Angels of all teams, like that, they 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 owe us an obligation to just trade him to the NL. <laughs> Because yeah. we are yeah. missing out on so much opportunity for him to be hitting and pitching in the same game mm-hmm. before they get rid of, you know, before the NL adopts the DH, it's uh, we should obli- I mean, the angels should be obligated. They they've taken now too many incredibly interesting and exciting players and wasted their careers. I'm done. The angels that's need yeah. to yeah, really- get both trout and Otani um, <laughs> to teams where they will be seen <laughs> and specifically with Otani, it needs to be an NL team.
0: Well, let me, let me put some analytics spin on, the, uh, on both Otani and Trout, specifically Otani. Um, what is remarkable about Otani is conceivably you could say he's the best player in baseball now, adds the most value. So in terms of the best person right now, it's got to be Jacob deGrom. He's, hit, he's got a half ERA. He's estimated at over four war, even at this point in the season. But if you add the two parts of Shohei Otani's pitching plus the hitting, he's about the same war, maybe a little higher. But just call it—it's a—it's a random variable. It's an estimate. So they've produced on the field about exactly the same amount. And there's an actual a little added benefit that Shohei Otani's adding—you don't have to carry an extra hitter,
1: yeah, because
0: right. he's a pitcher who hits, which gives you one extra roster spot. That's a big that deal. The Angels have have their, and that's and that's his his extra war i don't know how to value it but because no one has really tried but what, what is the extra roster spot worth and i think it's not worth it's probably worth a, a win maybe a half a win uh, over the course of a season maybe and so i think it's it's he's he's right now the most valuable player in baseball if you t- throw in trout in there if you, once he comes back for injury all this talent in in los angeles and the angels and they're just doing nothing with it just to follow up with Shane said. If you put him in the National League, he's another win more value right there because he's replacing a pitcher during the game who's horrendous. And uh, it's just sick how much value one person can bring to the team.
2: So we talk about – sometimes we talk about ownership in sports. And one of the first things that I really had my eyes open about when I first started working with professional football teams was how much uh, heterogeneity, one of our favorite words, there is in the quality of NFL team ownership. And it is the case across sports as well. So what do we know about angel ownership? What, why is it that the angels are so tragically bad or that they've wasted these generational talents out there? Do we know anything about their ownership structure out there or their front office?
0: I don't know. We've, I, we've worked with some people in the angels analytics staff, and they're good. Yeah, they have right. a system there on the side here. I mean, listen, you can't knock them. They signed Otani. They signed Trout. I think they're drafting, they're scouting. They know what they're doing. I'm not sure what is causing the the I mean they, they have Rendon, Trout and Ohtani all at the same time just not doing anything. Maybe it's the pitching side of things they can't get right. <laughs>
2: All right. Let's do a couple of the quick hitters before we have to wrap up this quarter. Is anybody paying any attention to the euros? You must be Shane to some extent. Are you paying any attention to soccer right now? No, just barely. All yeah, right. I so mean, we, with
1: basketball now, hockey playoffs going on, it's been a little bit tough to actually kind of keep track of stuff like that, especially with the time, you know, the kind of time this is, I, happening.
2: Well, Shane, this is, I mean, I'm like having a, I'm having a moment about June sports. For me, this is one of the best months we've had in a long time. We talk about what the best month of the year, partly, I think, the PGA kind of gave us a boost in May. Mm-hmm. It kept the golf mm-hmm. thing going, so it made the U.S. Open more interesting. Um, part of it's the College World Series because the Longhorns made the College World Series. Um, it's part of it's the Euro. The Euros we don't get the Euros every year. So there's a wonderful blend of sports right now. Anyway, they're in the they're in the final days of the group stage. Um, yeah, and
1: I, I mean, I kind of, of have been trying. I mean, part of I think what's motivating me from getting. Too into It's been going pretty chalky so far, right? I don't think there's been uh, God, a terrific amount of surprises.
2: Of the, you know, 16 out of 24 teams are going to advance, and so only a few teams are going to get knocked out. But you're right. There hasn't been those games. I mean, Scotland tied England, I suppose. Um, France, gave, France tied somebody they weren't supposed to tie, like Hungary or yeah. something. Yeah, um, yeah, but no, no, you know, I mean, the I mean, I guess
1: Spain, I guess the closest thing to kind of like uh, what would be a major upset uh, would be Spain is kind of third in their group right Spain now and hasn't, it hasn't right. won yet. So That's that, right. that, that would be that would be the closest thing we have to a surprise.
2: Well, by this time next week, we'll be in the knockout rounds, and it'll be, it'll be fun to see how that goes down. The other big event was the U.S. Open, and John Rahm finally broke through and got his first major. John Rahm has been hanging around major leaderboards for the last couple of years in the most ominous way and just hasn't gotten it done. He finally got it done at Torrey Pines in what was an incredible final day. I mean, up until early on the back nine, that leaderboard was as good as any leaderboard I've ever seen at a major championship. And then people just kind of fell apart Around Rom, and then beautifully, he closed it with two birdie putts, 17 and 18. Two, not one, two birdie putts to take the thing, and it was just an amazing, uh, beautiful tournament and final day. All right, guys, that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come-
4: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
2: on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, rolling into the fourth quarter now. This quarter has been interview segment we are delighted this week to welcome back to the show andrew thomas andrew's director of data science at smt smt stands for sports media technology core we'll hear a little bit more about what smt does andrew's been around sports analytics for some time now consulted with a number of mlb teams including our favorites the a's of course as well as being lead hockey researcher with the wild the minnesota wild andrew good to see you welcome back pleasure to be here good to see you all Absolutely. Listen, let's get caught up a little bit on the, on the NHL playoffs. We're in the conference semis and a few things have happened. We didn't talk hockey last week. We had a lot else on the agenda and our, our resident Canadian was away doing Canadian things. So we need, we need to get caught up. So the things that jump out to me are the Habs are still hanging around. They jumped out to lead uh, against the uh, expansion golden Knights and they've lost that lead. Now Um, on the other side, how in the world does a, does a team lose in the conference finals eight to nothing? So the, the Islanders lost eight to nothing against the Tampa Bay Lightning last night. And let's just start there. I mean, ha, that, has, that doesn't happen in the playoffs, does it? It happens very rarely. In fact, I was just
5: reading today that I think the last time there was a big score, like an eight to nothing score, was when uh, Pittsburgh was in the final. I think it was the clinching game against the North Stars in 1991. So we're talking 30 years since a game of that importance right. uh, was, was that level of a blowout. And I guess the short answer is it just happens occasionally when you've got a really good loaded offensive team, you keep the pressure loaded your way mm-hmm. and uh, one thing goes and the rest follows. But uh, well, the Tampa in particular, it also helps that they've got something like three very robust offensive talents up top and uh, a guy like Steven Stamkos uh, who'd been for his career, an ex- exceptionally good offensive player who would just been marred by injuries uh, including last year's playoffs, uh, finally was able to bust out and contribute big in a game like this at the same time that his teammates did.
1: I think it's with- interesting to sort of see, though, that the, I mean, I, I I agree. I mean, Tampa is absolutely loaded with offensive talent, but, you know, kind of one of the sort of like things have been, you know, new the Islanders kind of somewhat surprising run has been giving a lot of people, I think, that I've talked to. Uh, that, that it's almost been fear that this would be bring back kind of the super sort of like less interesting defensive styles of like, you know, the, the 90s New Jersey Devils and stuff like that, because the Islanders have gotten where they are with their kind of suffocating defense. So to a certain extent, it's, I guess, extra surprising to see Tampa Bay finally break through with that. Um, but you know, again, you, how much we read into it for the future. I mean, I, I, I kind of, you know, I, I, wasn't able to catch that game, but watch a lot of the highlights. And there was a lot of random kind of like just bad luck kind of bounces and stuff like that. I'm not sure how replicatable that is, but
2: how much bad luck is a five minute, p- a major is that bad luck?
1: <laughs> That's a lot of bad luck. Actually, <laughs> they, they
2: had, they had six penalties and I think they got three goals out of those six penalties. So they just, in some sense, they kind of lost it at some point. They also pulled their goalie right after he gave up a couple of quick ones early on. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going 8 to nothing you just want to save your goalie for the next game as much <laughs> fair <laughs> enough um eric what do you got is, over there
4: that's that's a perfect segue to my question is there since we're a stat show <laughs> could you come up with a coherent story is there any planet under which and i say this sort of facetiously where losing 8 to nothing could be a good thing i mean you're going to lose the game <laughs> let's be clear you're going to lose the game no one wants to lose any game especially in a series tied 2-2 yeah. but given you're going to lose Could you come up with a coherent argument that losing 8-0 may actually be better than losing a tight 1-2-1 or, you know, guys have to play extra time and therefore they're really exhausted or, you know, um, you know, the people can attribute it to other sources. Well, you know, freak things happen. But man, oh man, we just, you know, any way you can argue it?
5: Uh, I mean, the the rest angle is about the best you can argue statistically in that you've got Uh, more opportunities to play your bottom lines and spare your stars uh for quite a bit unfortunately Mm -hmm. when when your top center takes uh takes that five minute major penalty and knocks himself out of the game
2: Mm -hmm.
5: uh, you're going to be putting more pressure on everyone else to play up as well Um, although at that point if it's moot then maybe it's the best you're getting there uh i could make some psychological arguments that i don't know if they're becoming of the show but uh, there's one thing to say if you lost a game heartbreakingly, you say one nothing to nothing and thinking how damaging that might be versus being able to put that away for the next game knowing that it was just definitively so bad you might as well just clear out everything. Andrew that's yeah.
2: exactly what Eric was fishing for. He's just looking for some <laughs> friend here on the show to support his crazy psychological momentum anti-momentum whatever is convenient story he's got. So you Don't say
4: this time thank you for picking it up. I was happy with Andrew's momentum or anti-momentum. <laughs>
2: <would be> <laughs> Very
5: well, convenient.
2: convenient well, there.
5: They are traveling uh, after after a game like this. They're going going to a new uh new building after this so it might uh, that bit of a rest might end any questions you got about momentum either way just because travel does things right uh, the amount of sleep you're able to get after something like that and it just don't even bring it back to something you could quantify um i don't know if you're going to sleep better after a game like that you're probably going to have nightmares if you gave if you made one play
2: that cost you the game but you share that blame around and maybe that's, that's interesting feel a little bit better yeah that's that's interesting All right, let's flip to the other conference then, and uh, Las Vegas and Montreal are tied up 2-2. What's your take on the Habs hanging around here? They were the four seed coming out of their pod. Um, They dispatched the Leafs, which I want to hear about as well. But what what do do they – the Knights have evened it up. I think they're a pretty big favorite going into this thing. What's your position on – why are the Habs still in this?
5: Well, Carey Price has got to be the short answer to that. He's been Mm -hmm. playing playing, – unworldly like, or, or back to vintage carry price of the Olympics Mm -hmm. from uh, all those years ago. But Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of it is, I mean, goaltending is one of those factors and the bounces just go your way sometimes. And uh, I I'm speaking as a Toronto fan uh, who's been mostly detached from being a Toronto fan after having worked in the game. So uh, blowing a three, one lead like that uh, as Toronto did was uh, heartbreaking to a lot. Let's, let's,
2: let's talk about that because we know that they're not the only shop in the NHL that, is big on analytics, yep. but they're one of the more high profile shops and we're fans of Kyle Dubas and he's supposed to be in some sense, the savior there. Let's just re, re Andrew remind us how long it's been. I mean, this is, it's not quite Boston Red Sox, Chicago Cubs territory, but it's the, it's the hockey equivalent of it. It's 54 years as of this year. That was 1967. So one of the biggest franchises in hockey and they haven't won a championship in 54 years is pretty extraordinary. I mean, okay. So, um, what is your assessment? Is this just just the, the way things go sometimes or do you think they've, they're not on the right track?
5: Well, I think Toronto's got a lot of high octane offensive players just like Tampa has had and they've made that work. They were up definitively in a series. They had great goaltending for the first time in a series in a while. Uh, sometimes I think this is just a case where the bounces don't go your way and the other goaltender happened to play up too. Um, mm. at the la- on the other hand, in the last game, Toronto did blow that 3-1 lead and Uh, A lot of observers to the eye test would say that they played completely flat and uninspired in that game. There's Mm -hmm. almost no causal explanation there because plenty of three to one teams, uh, including Vegas um, blowing that in their first round matchup against Minnesota are able Mm -hmm. to come back and and own a game like that too. So Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you can make a momentum argument as much as anything, but the post hoc look at everything makes it look bleak that suddenly this was a team that crumbled and, I think it's a team that got unlucky and and up against again a a, a world class goaltender. Just
2: well, I make I make fun of Eric for his psychological stories, but now I mean, let's forget the last fifty four years. How long has it been since they've even won a playoff series? So they've got some. It's been seventeen years since. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of weight there. At some point, that could have consequences on the ice, presumably. But I'm not sure what they do to to change it up.
1: Andrew. 'm Kind of following up sort of on you know obviously what Kerry Price has been doing and what what Vasilevsky does for Tampa has been doing over the last couple of years for Tampa bay is there can you is is that if hot is hot gold turned still kind of the number one sort of predictor of Playoff success you know, or, or, you know, I mean, the answer could be that there's not no real good predictor of playoff success conditional on getting to the playoffs and, you know, hot turns, you know, the, the closest thing. But what, what's your sort of opinion or are there kind of other factors maybe coming out of more, you know, kind of analytics heavy stuff more recently that actually does give us some, you know, inclination as to why these, you know, like, you know, four seeds and three seeds and stuff like that end up making it so far.
5: Well, part of the problem is that hot goalie isn't a predictor; it's a post-hoc right, line. right, yeah, yeah. You get you can get a high and it's,
1: uh, yeah, it's an explanatory <laughs> variable, but not necessarily a predictor variable.
5: There was um, I was just reading this the other day that uh, in the 2011 Stanley Cup Final, Tim Thomas put up something like a 967, save percentage, giving up <laughs> half, like, like a half to a third of the goals he, he would normally do compared to his other numbers, and, and they won that series in seven games, so it was still nail-bitingly close. Wow, but. Is the fact that it's just such a random element compared to everything else. Um, the single most random thing that happens in the game is does the puck go in the net or not That, that drive, in terms of driving the outcome. And mm-hmm. um, it's tough to go back and identify other factors other than teams that are chronically out the other team. They mm-hmm. tend to do better for the most part mm-hmm. uh, just because mm-hmm. they're able to get more of those opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that I'm most excited about now that we're in sort of the next stage of, of the tech side of things is can we do a better job of identifying something like pressure? Can we tell whether or not a team is dominating a game uh, in a way that leads to goals as opposed to a way that's just killing time off the clock?
4: Mm-hmm. And
5: uh, I think a lot of the theory has been based on the idea that shots on goal or even just shot attempts are, are one way of measuring pressure like that. Mm-hmm. But I think we have, uh, people will be very curious to dip into that next level of whether or not something is being productively done um that in particular anything that might set up something later in a game would be interesting to follow up on because coaches want to know that they can contribute to a game strategically and tactically
2: and so, I- so tell us tell us something about that Andrew yeah. because being football people you might even say football rubes I understand plays that might happen in the first quarter that set up something that happens in the third yeah. in hockey I'm completely ignorant about what that might look like so wh- what do you mean well, it's not nearly as, as planned
5: as, as what's happening in football or even basketball, because you don't have too many opportunities to go back to the bench and say, okay, we're going to run the Statue of Liberty or, uh, or the, the Calgary Tower or whatever, or the CN Tower play. Let's just call it that, for the mistake of anything.
2: Funny <laughs> um, mo- almost- it doesn't get called that
5: south <laughs> of the border. <laughs> rare, rare, let's make that happen. Uh, I think one of the things that you're going to see um, from a coaching perspective, mostly it's just tactical matchups. You know that you've got one pair works better against another based on a short sample. A coach is going to try and play that also based on their, their mode of style, which is why, which is one contributor to home team advantage. Uh, But there's also the idea that you are trying to change up um, an entry scheme. um, If you're on a four check or you're trying to break through on the power play Um, the menu is a little more limited for what you can do during a game because there's only so much you can train for in practice. Mm -hmm. And so Mm
2: -hmm.
5: uh, most teams are still going to play the same type of power play like a um, where you have one player near the net or behind three players in a row and one player uh, near the the blue line. Um, I'm sure there's a real fancy like nationality for this, but I just call it the one, three, one or the, Mm -hmm. or the standard offensive cross. Um, There's not too many variations of those that are popular that you can train and adapt for immediately, but you can Mm -hmm. make substitutions, putting in different play mixing up your players, putting one in a different role. And if you okay. notice that one player isn't performing in that role, the easiest thing to do is to swap them out for
2: someone else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Andrew, I want to come back to this, this notion you talked about with the analytics that are available in hockey these days. You're hopeful that pressure, the concept of pressure, can be operationalized um, more precisely. So can you tell us a little bit more what you mean by that? Because I do think that's a good example of something that we're seeing. We're seeing analytics take us in that direction in multiple sports. It, it, maybe not baseball, but certainly football, basketball. And now you're talking about hockey. Just Also, it strikes me this might be helpful to us as casual viewers of hockey to, under, to differentiate the success or the, um, the likelihood of scoring when, from a particular um, possession. Right. So what does it look like? You, you, you contrasted pressure versus just kind of wasting time. So if you were to kind of talk through what that might look like, what are the hallmarks of, of, of a team putting pressure on the goal – whether or not to get a shot off, just you, that's what you're talking about. operationalizing. it's really neat. Help us understand what you mean. Yeah, well, you've got a, a lot of
5: kind of geometric elements you could apply to it that would give you some sort of a picture. But one of the easiest ways you could think about pressure is are you forcing the goaltender to do something rather than just stay put? So a mm-hmm. lot of the modern game is all about trying to get cross ice to play, to move the goaltender off their position and open up the net in order to get an established shot. And I'm sure mm-hmm. soccer works a lot of the same way The difference here with hockey is that those passes are much quicker. Um, Mm -hmm. That uh, the ability to get into the zone and set up a play like that is definitely quicker. Mm -hmm. So, if you're looking even at the simplest scenario of a two on one situation where you've got a a rush play in, one player is carrying, the other player is tagging along, and one defender is between them, um, there's, I mean, you've got options there that you can try and apply. But the simplest thing you can do is just try to see if you can beat that defenseman by making the pass across, because then the goaltender would have to move or mm-hmm. fake it so they would be in that position to, to get over. Mm-hmm. Um, because if the goaltender is in place um, and they can see the shot coming, shot your, your save percentage is almost always a lot higher, mm-hmm. uh, especially if there's some distance there. But even if they're in close, um, most of today's goaltenders have pretty good reflexes for those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So um, even just stopping the goaltender from seeing properly, getting a screen on there is a way of applying pressure because you're forcing mm-hmm. them to do something in order to adapt. Mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. more broadly than that you definitely get the idea that you're de- you're trying to get a defenseman to move out of position to generate something that looks like uh, a two-on-one or an odd man play so that you're forcing the goaltender or someone else to get out of possession in order mm-hmm. to, to do something mm-hmm. there um more generally just to contrast that with kind of wasting time play if you just have a five-man setup i'm apologize for using man repeatedly it's it's old. hey one, we're, but we're, it works for us you, know, you got you got five players uh out there working a cycle where they're just passing it around the perimeter. Uh, in theory, they're trying to look for opportunities to get that goaltender out of position or to get a shot set up from in close. But um, if you're not able to effectively get anything there um, driving that, then the idea that you're wasting that you're spending all this time without doing anything, even though that might show up on your shot clock, just by taking a, a shot from the perimeter, isn't necessarily going to give you what you need in order mm-hmm. to generate offense. Mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm.
1: So, Andrew, I had kind of a question, I guess, moving a little bit away from, like, the... or First of all, with the pressure one, I kind of wanted to ask you specifically about uh, Austin Matthews. I was reading a really interesting article, I think, in The Athletic, maybe about a month ago before the playoffs started, about kind of how he is able to sort of get players out of position, both defensemen and goaltenders, because he basically can kind of take shots from more orthodox angles, and, and, and sort of, like, he just has... A, he, he experiments with different shooting motions where it's sort of like he's kind of trying to you know, anticipate the goaltender's movements or the goaltender's reaction. Do you kind of feel like that is going to, like, I assume that will spread beyond Austin Matthews, though he's obviously a very particular talent in it. And do you kind of see that maybe affecting the equali- the future equilibrium between shooter and goaltender?
5: I would hope so. I mean, one of the things about Matthews in particular is that he's a world-class talent who, who can do creative things, but also doesn't stop. And um, the immediate comparison that came to mind when I read that article was it was actually Barry Zito because – he was a guy who, who, I don't know if he was a pioneer in this compared to everyone else, but he was definitely the one who made me aware of having the same arm angle for his fastball and his, and his curveball because it was enough to give deception so you didn't know where it was going to go. And that's something that's been practiced routinely by pretty much every data-using pitcher in the last 5, 10 years is trying to get arm angle to look the same in order to increase deception. So a guy like Austin Matthews is able to handle the puck and put a shot off in a way that's deceptive to the, the goaltender because they can't as easily read the stick or read their actions or read their eyes mm-hmm. about where they're able to do anything. Mm-hmm. So I would be astonished if more people, um, especially with new cameras coming in and the same kind of tech and the, and the, uh, the skills industry that's also present in hockey, I would be very surprised if more people weren't trying some of the same things. Um, the real question is how much of that is talent, innate talent and how much is yeah. learned? But um, right. I definitely well, sometimes, The
2: pioneers are the more talented, but then others can learn and adapt. Andrew, you just made a comparison to baseball, and this is something we wanted to talk about with you since you've been an analyst on both sides. And those sports, to most people, don't look very similar. (laughs) So I want to hear more generally, but you've just said something that we're always interested in, which is, are other sports going to adopt some of these player development techniques that baseball has kind of pioneered and baseball. I mean, I'm not even say golf pioneered it because they were the first with all this, this technology, but th- these, those sports have the advantage of guys who are either standing still or they're initiating the action. Hockey doesn't have that. And so you just referred to, well, maybe they're going to start the skills, guys, the skills camps they are going to bring in cameras and they're going to tell people, you know, the next, the next author, Austin Matthews, the 15 year old Austin Matthews, they're going to tell him more, about what his shot looks like and how we can adapt it. He's going to get feedback in the same way that pitchers are beginning to getting feedback on spin rates. Is that true? Is that happening? I think it's happening slowly. I definitely, you've definitely
5: seen kind of skills development take off as an industry a lot mm-hmm. more in base in hockey in the last uh, five or so years. Um, but probably not to the extent that you, we've seen a name like driveline come out, which mm-hmm. has been one of these brands that's very well established and, and uh, attached to players who are coming out.
4: I do know side.
5: Uh, Yeah, the baseball side. I do know that there's um, a guy named Daryl Belfry who runs a a consultancy who's also directly connected to the Leafs, uh, who does um, skills development one-on-one. But I don't know to what degree that he does specifically camera-based or any kind of tech. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know that uh, there's definitely a split among the skills development community between how much you want to just practice with the stick and the puck versus how much you want to call introduce toys. Uh, I should really put some air quotes on that one. But the, the idea being how much extra tech do you want to use to develop this? And I'm sure there's still an older, style, an older school mentality towards getting a lot of the toys on or off the ice. But there's definitely something to be said about video being a tool that more young people are using. Um, this is definitely clear, even on the bench uh, of games, more of the younger players are going back and they're watching their own shifts say, okay, what could we have done there? What, how could we have, have changed the opportunity? in anticipation of whatever their next move is going to be, their next mm-hmm. uh, matchup against a particular player. So I think you're going to see a lot of players who are invested in the idea of developing young, or especially a lot of parents doing the same thing too, getting mm-hmm. that kind of technology in there, um, just as long as they're able to identify what the kinds of skills are that they can improve. And if you're starting with something like shooting, uh, it's uh, almost the most natural place to start. Right. Because the payoff's going to be almost immediately noticeable on the scoreboard.
2: Right, right, right. Hey, real quickly, you've referred to players going back to the bench and watching a previous shift on video. Is that a thing? In, like in the NFL, you can't have video. You can't have computers in the stadium, much less video on the sidelines. They look at like Xerox copies of things, for all we know. This is still pictures. You know, Tom Brady's on there looking at still pictures. Yeah. Is that not they, – they, they're not as restricted in hockey?
5: No. In fact, there's an official partnership between the NHL and Apple uh, where they've got – and I want to say the SAPs in there too – um, but primarily the connection is they have an officially branded iPad, uh, or several of them on the bench, um, with an app that the NHL has co-developed with Apple and SAP in order to go back and look at video and, uh, some of the other player tracking tech that SMT contributes is available through that as well. So they can go back and they can watch a shift or they can see the overhead view, uh, in two dimensions of, uh, where the players were located at these times. So, uh, and be able to dial that up very quickly and immediately.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. fascinating and it does seem like such a great tool um of course players always do that between games but to do it between shifts is remarkable it's and it you, actually makes me wonder speaking <clears>
5: that whether or not it's useful because i don't know how much they're going to take away from it or whether they might overlearn or underlearn yeah fun. right but right I, right but i do know that if you're if you get the right people on the coaching side who can help kind of funnel it down to maybe one key player or, or something they know is going right. to be repeatable it can be very valuable
2: I mean, I have I have talked to a major school baseball coach who, while being analytics open, has lamented some young athletes coming up and being almost too data dependent. You know, they haven't developed the 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 instinct and the intuition. They they're they're, they're too reliant on being told what's going on. And you can imagine that is a liability. So there's a balance here. You just referred to SMTs providing some of this technology. So tell us a little bit about this. Is your current organization? Tell us a little bit about what they do. SMT is it's funny because a lot of people will, will, will say what I work for SMT and they'll say
5: what's that? And I said, even if you don't know the name of the company, you know our work because something like eighty percent of the first downlines you see in an NFL broadcast come from SMT. Uh, <laughs> and something
2: like Wow, that. that's hold on, that's like a that's a twenty five year technology. That was one of the first innovations in yeah. in football broadcasting. Yep. That's and we're great. still uh, and and it's still
5: making an impact today. I mean, okay. got me more interested <clears throat> in watching a broadcast. I'm not even a football guy, so right. Anything that uh, they can add at that level of context. So, um, so SNT's role has been to largely to enhance broadcast with these kinds of features. Okay. So uh, player tracking, in particular, has been, is being used now by by NBC Sports and Rogers up in Canada um, to take uh, and examine where players are and be able to add annotations, but also. To add additional context for the NHL and the teams, um, for where where players are and what they're doing, mm-hmm. um, there's puck tracking available too. That's
2: well. I was going to say, Andrew, remember the bad, the first generation puck tracking was that. Was that an SMT effort as well? Technically, yes. It was actually Sport Vision, the same company that did
5: pitching, okay. which is now an SMT unit. So, okay. so they're they're us now. But that's us, the the, the ugly fox puck. Uh, <laughs> It's been a dream of some people in the company for a long time to make this thing work effectively and less open to ridicule among Canadians.
2: Yeah, And, right. uh,
5: and frankly, I think they've done a pretty good job of that.
2: Okay. Well, you know, it's, it's, it is an amazing evolution in sports broadcasting, the, 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 the enhancements. And it's also neat to see because evolution's the right word, right? Because they try something, it doesn't work. The, the puck thing didn't work in the 90s or whatever. Now they're back with something better. But, you know, watching the U.S. Open this weekend, for example, I think they've made great strides in enhancing golf broadcast. And it was a little bit clumsy early on. And they've really, at least NBC, has done a real nice job with what they're, with what they're doing now. Well, I think
5: SMT contributes to contributes to the U.S. Open as well. Um, there's at least two pieces of technology that I know we're directly involved in, which are the, this, the balls off the drive and the balls landing on the green. So mm-hmm. both of those views being, being something you could superimpose. Uh, with a 3d projection of ball trajectory or being able to set up other um, annotations to kind of educate the viewer on anything that they might find useful for that. Uh, For me, even just the ball trail trail coming off, that's super useful because I don't have a, I can't squint well enough to figure out where I'm going off some of that. Right.
2: None of us can. And I mean, they give us a lot of different pieces. The first time it says, you know, 99 yard apex, like whatever, I don't know what 99 yard apex looks like, but Two hours later, when you've seen 99 and 128 and 66, all of a sudden, it starts meaning something. It's kind of interesting. Andrew, tell us, you've got this interesting perspective, having worked in both sports and now being involved in on the data side and, and on the production side. What do you think the most valuable margin is in sports analytics? Or maybe the most interesting margin that's being worked on right now in sports analytics?
5: Oh, boy. That's a that's a fascinating question that I'm going to have to meander my way through if I'm going to give you some fine. With totally with fine. Content, but... The, 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 single most effective margin I think right now is even just communicating the simple stuff. I mm-hmm. think it's still going to be that way for another 10 or 15 years because we're still in an era where we're converting our thinking over to what data can tell us as opposed to what our eyes have told us by kind of putting together what our eyes are telling us about or what the data is telling us about what our, 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 our eyes are seeing. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, um, there's been a lot of growth in baseball in particular, about role player, uh, sorry, not role players, coaches who have the role of being former players who know how to run a SQL query. So they they are <laughs> being set up specifically as this conduit to yeah. be able to tell people who would have otherwise been skeptical what data is telling them about their game. Yeah, because even that small little return about getting someone to listen to the most uh, the, the simplest point, but putting, being able to put it in a way that they will respect and understand. Yeah. Um, Pretty much with every coach who grew up without a computer or or a GM who who was a former player, the second that they hear it in their language, something changes, and they're more, yeah. they can be much more receptive to that. Yeah. So that's uh, no matter what kind of work you can do with uh, with fancy or tracking tech like we've got, being able to make that communication is that essential switch. And I think yeah. partly the reason I'm so excited about tracking being what what it is is it's so much easier to present it in a very clear way that. Here's what the data is telling us because you can see it in front of you right. with video We're directly stapling to that data. Right. And it gives you an opportunity to have that conversation in a way we couldn't have done before.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like an utterly sensible answer, but even though it's not one we would expect it, because communication is like, we've been saying that as one of the big challenges for, you know, since the dawn of analytics. And you're saying even now, even this far along, it remains the most productive margin. And, you know, I would say the same thing's true and it's happening right in front of our eyes at the broadcast level, right? I mean, one of the reasons it hasn't gone very far in soccer is because people don't yet know how to communicate data analytics in soccer real time. I and mean, people are watching the sport. How do we integrate this? And it's, it's a big challenge in that sport, well, which is holding, holding it back. Well, it's,
5: it's the same in hockey. In fact, we, we're, we're in year one of this, this new era with player tracking. And a lot of people don't quite know what things are going to be interesting. As, as, mm-hmm. And that's because we're still discovering it.
1: Mm-hmm. But even mm-hmm. on top
5: of that, a lot of the history of what's been popular in um, the blogosphere in hockey and even at the beginning um, of the kind of a bigger research program are things that are much more seasonal. Like because data is so much more limited, what, what good does it tell you in a broadcast to put up a chart of someone's uh, shot, uh, shot share where they've got 60% of the shots that are happening uh, for their team when they're on the ice? Maybe a broadcaster um, could make that work, but it's less anecdotally interesting. Whereas you get something a little more granular where you can say, well, Austin Matthews has has entered the zone with possession seven times, and the average player, and then the the context has to be important to this, the average player in this position has only done it three times. Mm -hmm. Suddenly you're doing something that a broadcaster can get their hands on to say, well, well, this is new data that's telling us something we didn't before, and the context to make that really valuable.
2: Yeah, Um, but then now you have the challenge of, I mean, this is, you know, this, this, this is like a baby step coming up from the broadcasters that can be so misused. It's like three out of the last seven times or whatever. Like, oh, this is such a small sample challenge, right? We've got we've to fight against that in, in some way. So there's a real balance between these two things. Anecdotal enough for those broadcasters to get their teeth into them, but robust enough for them to be valid. Because, God, we've been looking at bad stats from broadcasters since we were children on Monday Night Football, telling us how, many, how valuable it is to rush the ball because teams that rush the ball more win the game. Well, aren't you can argue with success. Those win- winners prove everything you want. Yeah, that's right. That's right, Andrew. <laughs> all right. Listen, man, thanks for joining us. Great to talk with you. Uh, thanks for the update on the NHL. We always need additional perspectives on hockey, but more broadly about sports analytics across all the sports. Andrew Thomas, really appreciate your taking the time. My pleasure, Kate. Thanks, gentlemen. You bet. Andrew Thomas, Director of Data Science at SMT, has been involved with MLB and NHL over the years. Guys, that has been another Wharton Moneyball, another two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. We appreciate your being here for the whole team. Eric Broadley, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. This is Kate Massey. Many thanks to the boss man, Matty Datz, who makes these things happen, as well as Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man, who 100% makes these things happen. Much appreciated. You guys, thanks for listening. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.